tonight we thought we'd do a different kind of worship and celebration, and that's actually spend time just listening to Tiffany talk to us about what she was doing for the six weeks that she was in Ethiopia. As many of you know, Tiffany is finishing her master's in cross-cultural studies at Fuller Seminary. And so that prompted the practicum that sent her to Ethiopia. So maybe you just want to kick us off right there and tell us what you were doing in Ethiopia and what is this practicum all about? Well, the practicum is required for all the students who go through the master's at Fuller. And basically it's supposed to be this huge integration of everything that you've studied. And my specific concentration was international development. So I wanted to do a practicum and do a, an integration paper on evangelism and development work because I have always felt that those two um, have been kind of at odds with each other, especially in the church that I grew up. Either, you know, one church really, really cared about preaching the gospel and going door to door and all that kind of stuff, you know, that kind of thing. Or another church really cared about um, serving the poor, social justice type issues. I just kind of lumped that all together into development work. And I never could find a good medium in between those two until I came to Fuller. So I wanted to work with an organization that did both and integrated those two seamlessly. That was the purpose of the practicum. That was why I went to study the integration of evangelism and development work. And you did the practicum with LifeWater International. Mm -hmm. So you should tell us a little bit about LifeWater. We've supported LifeWater. We've had some different events that are focused on LifeWater, but maybe people in the group who are kind of newer don't know much yeah. about LifeWater. So tell us about that. Yeah. So LifeWater International, if you were here last October, Ben and I organized a um, 5K fundraiser for LifeWater. And on the front, everyone thinks that LifeWater is a clean water organization, and they are, but they're actually a clean water, sanitation, and hygiene uh, organization. And it's interesting because um, so much attention gets placed on clean water, like clean water wells, kids around the well takes like the best pictures and stuff like that. But studies have shown that if you integrate clean water with pit latrines, like a place to go to the bathroom, or good hygiene, like hand washing at critical times and covering food and that kind of stuff, it actually lowers the incidence of like childhood diarrhea or just water-related sicknesses by a much greater percentage than just clean water. And the reason why I chose LifeWater to go with is because they're very different than the typical nonprofit or non-governmental organization. There's all sorts of organizations that deal with clean water, like Water Aid, Catholic Relief Services have, has a whole like water sector, World Vision has a whole water sector. So there's a ton of different um, water organizations, but I chose LifeWater because they're just very different and very effective in what they did. They succeeded in a lot of areas that these bigger organizations didn't. Um, and they're praised for that, and they get a lot of grants from different um, donors and different foundations to continue doing their work because their methods are different. So that's why I chose to go with LifeWater specifically. And give us an overview of, like, where in Ethiopia you were. So there okay. were a number of cities that you visited, and just so that when you're talking about the different pieces yeah. later, give us an idea of, like, what cities you went to and what you you know, just in general, what you were doing in those cities. Yeah, I spent most of my time in the capital, Addis Ababa. And when I was there, I did a lot of research in terms of conducting four more informal interviews with professors from the local seminary or from the university that was there. Um, I talked to professors of evangelism, professors of Christian-Muslim relations, because there's a large Muslim population in Ethiopia. I asked them about their evangelism methods. I talked to different development workers, social anthropologists, just to get an idea of the culture of Ethiopia and 
what evangelism and what spirituality looks like there, because it's very different from here. And then when I traveled outside of Ethiopia, I went down to two main regions, the Hosanna region, which is um, a big town. Hosanna's a big town, and LifeWater works in various um, sub-communities around Hosanna. And I also went down to the Oromia region, which is in the southern part of Ethiopia, and we traveled a lot around there. We went almost all the way to Kenya, maybe like 20 miles from the Kenyan border. And when we traveled, we visited a lot of different sites. So we called them site, site or field visits. And those could be anything from a water point, like a water well or a water spring or a hand dug well or something like that, um, or visiting what they call model households, which is households who have implemented a pit latrine and have good hygiene practices that are a model for their community. Um, so we did those two things, or we visited schools and visited different water wash clubs that students had formed to promote sanitation and hygiene in their community. So we visited a lot, and we asked a lot of questions. We didn't really do anything in terms of digging wells or, you know, providing soap or helping build pit latrines. We were just there to encourage the people that um, were doing that work and for me to gain a bigger picture of how life water works and why they're effective. So I did a lot of interviews with people, with household members, and asked them about their life before and after either a water point was installed or a latrine was installed, and why they chose to do that, why they chose to change their behavior, and just try to gather information that way. That's basically what we did. So you alluded already to the idea that life art is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. It seems like they have a different method as well as just being a little different. It seems like they approach the whole idea of serving or development in a totally different way mm -hmm. than a lot of other groups. So what sets them apart? I mean, that's probably the reason you were going to study mm -hmm. them, I assume, is to mm -hmm. spend time to try to identify those things and to write about them. And yeah. what did you find? Um, I found three major differences. Um, first of all, LifeWater has a very holistic view of poverty, and I'll explain what that means. In one way, a lot of people view poverty as just a lack of material objects, like lack of money or lack of food or a lack of malaria nets or a lack of medicine or something like that. It's a lack of a material thing. But the biggest and most helpful thing that I think I've learned at Fuller in terms of integrating um, evangelism and development work is the fact that there are certain development professionals who view poverty as a holistic matter meaning that poverty is physical, but it's also social. So there's a social type of poverty if people are excluded from certain things. Um, there's a psychological or a personal poverty if there's things like shame or embarrassment or um, different psychological ailments are involved. There's environmental poverty if people have a lack of use for their land or if something is, is happening in the society where they can't use their land for their benefit or there's a societal poverty, um, if there's like social injustices and, and systems that are oppressing people, that's a different type of poverty than just lacking food. And there's also just relational poverty between people, um, you know, ethnic conflicts or tribal conflicts, something like that. That's a type of poverty that is preventing people from maybe gaining access to stuff or this and that. And I think that's one of the biggest things that LifeWater tries to promote, that they have this holistic sense of poverty so that when they implement water points, which is addressing a physical poverty aspect, they do it in a way that also addresses 
um, a social poverty or an environmental poverty or cultural or a societal, something like that. Um, and I'll get into more of how they do that, but I think that's one of the biggest differences. If you read like um, just their strategy compared to something like Water Aid, which is not necessarily a Christian organization. Um, I, I'm not saying that only Christian organizations have holistic senses of poverty because there's a lot that don't. But um, like Water Aid and and Life Water, their methods are very different. Um, the way they implement their projects are very different. If if your view of poverty is the poor lack things, then it's a provision of things. It's here. Here's a pit latrine. Here is soap. Here is a water point. Here is this. If your view of poverty is the poor are sinners, then it's going to be evangelism that takes like center stage. Okay, let's go preach the gospel and like get them to be Christians. But if your view of poverty is, um, you know, people are oppressing them, then you might go and do advocacy work as your thing to get rid of poverty. But the thing about Life Water is it's holistic. It's all of those things. They take all of those different views. So the way they do their projects addresses those things. Is that a better way? I mean, the reason I ask is, like, it yeah. seems like that would take a long time mm-hmm. to address all of those things. So, like, if people are in need of water, uh, I can mm-hmm. see why an organization would just say, uh, let's just go get some water to them. Yeah. Um, and it sounded like you identified other things, like people who are worried about oppression, people who are worried about physical mm-hmm. need. Uh, but if you're trying to address all of them, that would seem like it could take you a long time uh, before you moved on to the next mm-hmm. kind of project. Is that... Yeah, and... I think that that is one of the drawbacks that could be present there with this view. But um, I think what convinced me the most during this trip about the need for a holistic sense of poverty was this story that one of the project leaders was telling me. He said that he was working in a highly Muslim area, and he was with this community that had a lot of um, folk Islam. And they were very, very aware of spiritual forces and unseen forces. So they, they, they have this project there, and they're trying to implement these pit latrines, so basically a toilet for people to go to the bathroom in because there's a lot of open defecation everywhere, and that's why they're getting all sick and stuff like that. No one's washing their hands. No one has been taught to wash their hands for generations, so why would they do that? They were trying to implement this stuff, and they couldn't. There was so much resistance because the leader of that community said, we cannot have a pit latrine anywhere in this community because demons come out of holes. That's what they believed in. And so a pit latrine requires you to dig a, a hole that's like nine meters deep, and that is the essence of a pit latrine. And if you don't have that, then you don't have a pit latrine. But what they were coming into was they couldn't implement something that would cater to a physical aspect of poverty because of something, um, a spiritual belief that was holding them back. They believed that that happened, and that was preventing them from implementing a pit latrine. And so I think that story in itself was the convincing factor for me that, okay, if WaterAid came in here and built this pit latrine, and there are stories like this. They told me that these organizations came in, built these pit latrines, and a year later they would come back, and they've sold the soap for money. They've deconstructed the pit latrine and sold the wood for money. They've used the wooden slabs that the pit latrines have and used it for, like, their kitchen. And the pit latrine is gone, and they filled in the hole. And so... I think I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think there is a time and a place to give directly, and then there is also a time and a place to take a little bit more time to address different aspects of poverty because in any given situation, there could be different aspects that are preventing someone from, um, say, implementing a pit latrine or hand washing or something like that. 
There seems to be a difference just in the approach that you were just talking about, about coming in and doing something, Mm -hmm. like digging a pit latrine and then leaving, Mm -hmm. versus like what you were talking about. You're hinting that people do this for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like in your other example, someone did something and then left and then came back to check on it. Mm -hmm. And so there's clearly a difference in that method. Is that why you can spend more time Mm -hmm. working on holistic methods? Because you're not coming back, the people are actually doing it there on their own? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, that's the second thing that I've noticed that life water is different. So the first thing was the holistic view of poverty. And the second thing is what they call participatory methodology. And it's, I don't know if it's a rel- new, new thing in development work, but it's newer than most um, humanitarian work. And what that means is there is a belief that the beneficiaries, so the people who are benefiting from the water well or the latrine, that they're involved not just as recipients but as active participants in their own development. So that's why it takes a long time because behavior change, one, is takes a long time. If you had not grown up washing your hands for generations and generations, and you're trying to convince this 80-year-old elder to do it, that doesn't just happen overnight. You know, that doesn't happen. Like a pillow train takes resources and stuff, but they've done studies to show that if someone invests their own resources into a project, then it's more meaningful to them, and they'll maintain it over the long run. Um, so the participatory methodology is is key because the way that LifeWater does their work is that they train trainers. That's the third different thing. Um, WaterAid or some other organization will go in and implement a train, and they might teach the community how to maintain the latrine or the water well too. But then they leave, and LifeWater's model is that they work with in-country partners. So their in-country partner in Ethiopia is the Makani Jesus Church, which is the largest evangelical denomination in Ethiopia. And that church has its own development branch, so it's really easy for LifeWater to work with that development branch. And so what they do is LifeWater sends international volunteer trainers over to a country like Ethiopia to train key people in these types of latrine construction, sanitation, hygiene, disease transmission, holistic ministry. They train these people in how to do participatory methodology even with the communities. Uh, And they train them in this training over a period of a year. Like they'll come maybe five times a year and do two week long trainings. And the people who are involved in these trainings are like employees of the partner organization or they are uh, school directors in the project communities. They are health professionals. They are other development technical professionals. And it's a mixture of Christians, Muslims, male, female, government workers, church workers, educational people, health sector. They bring like 30 of these people in the key areas in to do these trainings five times a year for two weeks. And then those people are the ones that are in charge of implementing in the community. And it's sustainable because those people actually live in the community. They work and live in that community. Um, I think one of the most effective things that I saw was they, they trained these people called health extension workers or health promoters, and their entire job, LifeWater pays them with their budget to live in the community and go and visit every single household over the course of this year um, and talk with them, build relationships with them, um, understand and listen to why they won't implement hand washing, what is stopping them, come back and visit again and say, why don't we try this, and walk alongside them as, as they implement it. And even if they take a step back, they're there to encourage them 
to go on. So I think those are the three things that I saw that were really different. So the holistic view of poverty, the fact that they're participatory, so the people that are benefiting are active participants in research, in implementation, and in evaluation of the project, and they train trainers. They don't go and then do stuff. Like by the time actually when the latrine is being built, the, the foreigners basically, the volunteer field trainers are basically supposed to just stand there and allow the people that they have trained to work with the communities that they live in. Basically, they're working with their neighbors. And they're just there to watch, and they're there to help if there's an emergency, but they're really not supposed to do anything except watch because LifeWater doesn't want to create um, dependency. They don't want to create a sense of, oh, we don't have something, so we're going to go to a foreign nation to get it, or to a foreign people to get it. They have their own skills and their own tools and local Ethiopian people that are much more well-qualified to implement those things. And that's what LifeWater wants to do, to teach the communities that, yeah, you guys have skills too. You can help take care of yourself, which is hard because other organizations are doing things. They're saying, no, you need us. You need us to come and build these walls for you. Is there competition there for giving aid in this way? I mean, it sounds like, like you'd have other organizations come in and go, don't listen to those people. We can just give you what you need and stop training all this trainers like we could just mm. you know let's just dig the well and dig the latrine and and move on i mean is there is you know, there like some sort of turf war going on i don't know if there's a turf war the government loves the makani Asus church and loves the development sector which is what life water partners with because they go into the places that no one else wants to go like we literally drove for an hour on this highway and then we turned at like a random rock and <laughs> just drove like the other way like, I felt like I was in the Indiana Jones ride for, like, an hour. Like, and then all of a sudden you see this huge canyon with, like, thousands of people in there. You would never know they were there. And no one wants to go there because it's a rough ride. Like, it's a rough. And these people, these development workers from the church go there all the time. Um, in terms of resistance, I've heard several stories from some of the LifeWater field trainers that some of the people that came to the trainings they really just wanted their bag of like pens and life water hats and stuff to leave, and that's it. Because that's what they're used to. They're used to going and sitting and having someone talk to them for like eight hours a day for five days, and then leaving with this notebook full of information and a bag full of like paraphernalia, you know. And so life water, what they do, they just don't, they don't bring anything. They bring like a pad of paper and some markers. And they, they told me that one guy asked, like, well, where, when do I get my life water shirt and my life water hat? And they said, you're not going to get that here. If that's why you're here, then you should leave. And they give them the option to leave. It was interesting, though, because when I went to a training, the last week I was there, I, I was observing one of their field, field training teams. And um, the lead trainer, Jim Whitaker, he pointed out a guy and he said, yeah, that guy, Bogale, he was one of those guys. He asked for his LifeWater hat. And now he's, like, the biggest proponent. He's, like, the most active participant in these, like, in these trainings and stuff. And, you know, he'll just talk on and on and on about, like, how his community has changed and how he's seen his community basically do his own job. Like, and that's what the thing is. Like, the community members are spreading this knowledge to other people. And actually, that's when LifeWater considers himself successful. On their website, they're saying, we consider ourselves successful not only when, you know, people in rural communities gain, like, life-saving techniques like hand-washing or pit latrines or clean water, but that they also gain, like, the motivation to share that knowledge with other people. And so that's how LifeWater trains those trainers, and then that's the framework for how those trainers implement everything in their community. 
So what comes out of this? Let's say you do that. They're successful, and they've implemented some of these things where they've trained the trainers. The trainers have gone in. A village is starting to adopt this. They're catching the the idea, and they're even getting excited about it. Um, What happens other than people now have water? um, People now have more hygienic ways of living. There's got to be more to it, or Mm -hmm. else they wouldn't be driving to it. So what did you see? Did you witness anything? Yeah, I have several examples. I think... I'll start with one, and this example is an example of how their methods have catered to a social type of poverty. I visited a community. It was like one of those things where you turn it around a rock, and then all of a sudden there was this like huge canyon full of people. Um, they were telling us a story. We were we were talking, and the translator was asking what happened before, what happened afterwards, and that. And you know, most communities we visit have the same story. Like we used to have to get water from this hole and like this river and it's gross you know and they'd show me like the parasites that were in the water that were making people sick and stuff like that and it's usually like that kind of stuff but this community they said that you know when before this water spring before we helped implement this water spring even that language is different they don't say before life water implemented this water spring. they say before you know the makani usage church came and helped us and before we implemented this water spring there was a lot of violence in this region. And I asked, wait a minute, what, what do you mean violence? And they said that there were two tribal groups that were in this area, in the Oromia region, the southern part. And um, there was only one source of water, which was this river. And there was only really one area where it was safe to collect water because there was other more dangerous areas of the river and places that you couldn't get to easily. And they said that the people from the two tribal areas were fighting all the time. No one could get water without, like, Huge fights and brawls happening, and soon the government had to post an armed guard at the river just to keep the order. And so when the Makaniasu's church, LifeWater's partner, when their project leaders came and said, hey, we want to work with this community, we want, um, but you guys are going to have to do the work, they made sure that they had people from both ethnic groups in this, like, planning committee so they had people from these two places work together um, to implement this water spring. And now the spring is there. It wasn't under construction or anything. I came and visited, and then I asked them, so what happened to the violence? Is there still violence between these two communities? And they were just like, no. I'm like, well, why? Why is there no violence anymore? And he goes, oh, because we've forgiven each other. This water spring now has so much water, and we can share it with each other. And we're friends now, and these people are our brothers. These people are um, people, too, and they need clean water. And now we've worked with them, and we're at peace with each other now. And so that story, I feel like I don't hear many of those stories, or at least people don't highlight those stories, I guess, in other organizations. But I feel like that's a huge success. Not only do they have clean water, which is addressing a physical type of poverty, but the way that they did it by including the two you know, people from the from both tribal areas, that has also sprung about a healing in another way, not just a physical healing. It's a social type of healing. So that's one example. Another thing is just that sense of ownership that people have over their projects. All the water points I visited had um, a wash committee. So that meant that people there in the community, living there, not from the church and not from Life Water, they were the ones that were in charge of maintaining the latrines, maintaining the water points. 
And it was really funny because one time, like, these WASH committee members were like, oh, I have something to show you, Tiffany. And they're like, this quote they said in a different language. And then, like, the project leader who spoke English translated me. And he said, they're really excited to show you something. And so and this happened all the time. And it took me a while to get used to it. But they basically wanted to show me their toilet, like, their latrine. <laughs> and I was like, and all of a sudden it hit me one day. I'm like, uh, would I be so excited? Like, come on, run, I'm going to show you my toilet in my apartment. Like, let's go, you know. But... The only reason why they were so excited is because that household member, they built it with their own hands. Like, they saved the money, they bought the wood, they bought the strings, they bought everything, and they built it. And it took them a long time, and they were proud of it. And it was clean. They were always telling me how clean it was, how clean everything was, and how, like, their children now are washing their hands after they, they... they go to the bathroom, or how, oh yeah, I built this latrine, and then my neighbor, I told him to build a latrine, and now he's in this process, but he's not, he's not done yet, but I'm helping him, you know, and it's just these, like, stories of pride, and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're showing me their bathroom, like, what's going on, um, but the thing is, like, that whole sense of having pride in your work, like, that doesn't happen if someone just comes and gives you a pill latrine, the example I thought of was, like, if someone came to Exodus, and was like, here's this multivitamin, and it's going to stop cancer, and you should take him. And he said a whole bunch of stuff about it, and we're like, okay, that sounds good. We have to take it every day, and you can't forget. And here, here's like a thousand pills for each one of you. You can take it too. Um, I don't know if I would take it. Like, honestly, like, I probably would just like, uh, I don't know. But the way that LifeWater does it is that they would hire someone from this community, maybe like Rachel, she's a nurse or something, and like train Rachel in how to do this and how to like explain all the different like benefits and pros and cons and side effects and all that kind of stuff. And then they would hire her to visit us all the time <laughs> and talk to us be our friend, talk to us about why we don't want to take this pill, what we're scared of, things like like personal things that are scary for us and stuff like that to, to convince us to take these pills, right, these these things. And that's the way LifeWater does it. They train these health promoters to walk with people, okay, and now these people have built a latrine and they have something to be proud of. They have something to show for it, I guess. That happened at the same thing in schools. I visited this one school where they had a wash club. And these students, like, created this whole drama about, that they would perform in their community about, like, these two families. One who implemented, like, all the techniques and then one that didn't. And in the one that didn't, like, there were some really funny ones, but this one was, like, really serious, even though people were laughing. But, like, the patriarch of that family died, like, because he didn't wash his hands, like, after he went to the bathroom, and they showed, like, how the transmission was, like, you know, he went to the bathroom in the bush, and he didn't wash his hands, and then he went to collect water, so now, you know, fecal bacteria is in the water, and that, then they showed them, like, bring the water to the house, and then the mom is getting water and putting it in their food and cooking it, and then they're eating it, so they're showing, like, the transmission, and, like, these kids, like, they're so gung-ho, like, they were, like, we do this all the time, every single week in our community, and we go to every different home, and we do this for them, and we show them, and we do it at, like, community meetings, and we do it for our school talent shows, and we go to other communities, and we do them. And they were just so proud of what they did, and it's that sense of pride that doesn't happen if you just, again, give someone. 
you're using WASH, which stands for Water mm -hmm. Sanitation Hygiene, just just for people to, to catch yeah. up because you've, so the WASH committee and those kinds of things are actually, yeah. all right, that's kind of good. Did you have a question? Yeah, I did. I was just curious about how you begin to educate people about bacteria and orofecal transmission to people yeah. who probably never heard of bacteria or have, like, yeah. what is their level of knowledge about how disease is transmitted yeah. and, like, how do you educate them about that? Um, that's a very good question. And... Um, during the training, you know, remember the life water training is not the entire community. It's they train the trainers. They train the leaders. But then these trainers are also trained to do the same types of activities. So one of the ways that they do that is by pictures because a lot of people are illiterate. And what will happen is instead of giving them a notebook of stuff and just teaching from it, they will divide like a community group. Like when the trainers are in a community, a rural community, um, they'll have like Men go over here, women go over here for their own training, and like children go over here. So there's no, there's no, there's comfortability for, for them to talk. And so each group will have a set of pictures. Um, actually, Ben and I, when we were up at LifeWater, they did this with us, actually. They'll have a picture of just poop, basically, <laughs> like on one end, and then they'll have a picture of a mouth on the other end. And then they'll say something like, you don't normally eat this stuff, right? But then they'll lay out all these pictures, like a fly, and then they'll lay out a picture like a river, and then another picture of food, and maybe something like cattle. And then they give them like sticks or something like that, or tape, and then they'll say, okay, show me how feces can get into your mouth using this tape and using these pictures. And so what they'll maybe give an example and they'll have a piece of tape from the feces to the fly and then they'll say, okay, so there's lots of flies around here and there are. Fly will land on a child's mouth and that's a way of transmission. And then they'll give, and then by that time the trainer is just, okay, you guys do it now. And so they'll take turns and they'll each go, okay, a community member will take a piece of tape and going from the feces to a river. Feces, if you defecate in the river, that's that. And then they'll have, I'm missing a bunch of pictures, but they'll have a picture of someone collecting water. They'll draw a line from, like, the river to the person collecting water, and then from that person to the mouth, because they use the water for food. So they do that with the community. So the community is teaching themselves, basically, and using their critical thinking skills that they have, but um, they're not usually allowed to do that in other techniques. But here, they're allowed to to do that. That's just one of the ways. Is, like, is there a basic community knowledge, okay, feces bad, will cause disease? Like, is there an, an, like, an innate knowledge, like, this will cause you to be sick? Not always. Not always. I think in some communities that I've heard of, yes, they know, but they just don't understand, like, why, why would I have to have a place to go to the bathroom? I'm not eating that stuff. Like, that's not. And other places that, um, that there isn't, then there has to be a little bit more direct hands-on teaching in that area, but I feel like those are the only instances where there really are, okay, this is bad. Other, after they've established that, and that's why this method, like John was saying, it does take a long time. Um, and if you're talking in terms of like time effectiveness, life water is not very time effective. <laughs> but if you're talking about like sustainability so that people won't have to always spend money to come back or that like, you know, they won't sell their soap for money, you know, then I really feel like that method is, is a way to sustain that, yeah. 
do you know what the statistics are about the prevalence of um, like deaths based on not having clean water? And also, uh, does that help? Like, whenever you talk to people and you maybe say that, does that kind of spark them to say, okay, I want to do something about this? Yeah, well, the statistics are, I don't know about overall statistics, but like for children, it breaks down to like every 15 to 20 seconds, the child under five will die from a water-related disease, usually diarrhea. And that's definitely true in a lot of the communities. They've at least lost one child because of diarrhea. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that affects them like that. I don't know what they think of that. I don't, I don't even know. Even though I told them that, I don't know if I can even interpret like their, their facial expression because that could mean totally something different. And like, I don't know if people are affected by that in Ethiopia, but they definitely have like that sense of, yeah, you know, they know that it's hard to get clean water. They know like it's all around them that their kids have diarrhea. Whether or not they know it comes from clean water is a different story, and I don't know if they know that. So, Is there anything that you thought you kind of had a good handle on, having you know studied in school mm-hmm. and getting your master's work uh, almost finished and then focusing specifically on development? Is there something that you thought you had a pretty good handle on that when you were actually on the ground, you either had to rethink somehow or kind of thought, maybe I don't really have a handle on this as much, mm-hmm. like seeing it in person uh, overwhelms the theory that I had in my mind? I don't think anything overwhelms me to the point of me saying, I don't know about participatory methods. I think, if anything, it showed me how much I don't know about participatory methods. I saw, like, I only saw, like, a snapshot of how effective that was and how effective those methods can be. But I just realized that I know, like, nothing. And I think a lot of that has to do with just... I don't know the culture of Ethiopia. I spent six weeks there, but I like barely scratched the surface. And I think that's why it's so important to train indigenous people because they have grown up there and they understand the different obstacles that we don't understand. Like the whole example with the demons coming out of a pit. Like, I don't know anything about that. I don't know like what other folk animistic beliefs they have. I have no idea. And honestly, like for Someone from Life Water coming in, it's not essential for them to know that because the whole purpose of it is for Life Water to be able to leave well and to be able to leave without, um, you know, that much of a footprint so that the local people can take over. Uh, using your example of demons out of holes, would Life Water try to start correcting that belief, or would they? I mean, I think that ventures into a little bit of a different topic, but Life Water wouldn't do that. The people who work with them, the Makaniasis Church, whether or not it's the development workers or the community leaders that were trained by LifeWater or something like that, um, they would be the ones that would address that issue. And I think that it ventures into just um, an area of cultural expressions of faith and stuff like that. Because I had, I had that thing. I was like, wait a minute. Demons don't come out of holes. Like, why would you believe that? And my first instinct would be like, no, we need to tell them that demons don't come out of holes. But maybe it was my on-site supervisor. He was like, Tiffany, they very well may come out of holes, and we just don't know. But the point is that that's what they believe in. And regardless of whether or not it's true, it's stopping them from implementing a life-saving technique. So I think that in that situation, they would 
just take a lot more time. I think that it just takes a lot of time for them to build trust so that this person who believes that understands, okay, this person's not just trying to convert me and to be done with me. They actually want to be my friend. They actually want me to help. They um, are going to walk with me in this. Maybe I will try this, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't know. I don't know the whole process of that, but I do know that the development worker and their you know, the evangelists, the Maconiasis Church has like a team of evangelists that will work in the same area to overcome those, I guess, spiritual obstacles that are stopping people from not doing these life-saving techniques. So the process of that takes a while. Like that belief is not going to just die overnight. And so that's why it takes a long time. And that's why Life Water is in it for like longevity's sake. <laughs> Rachel? Yeah, not necessarily about like changing their beliefs, but would life water be flexible enough to like try alternative? Like at least you, okay, for now we can't fit, build you a pit latrine. Maybe we could at least all get you to defecate over here, so you're not all defecating yeah. everywhere. Like would yeah. they be flexible enough to implement like partial techniques? Yeah, to try to work in the pit yeah, latrine. Yeah, exactly. They teach different um, uh, methods of building pit latrines and different methods of safe like fecal disposal. And so definitely, like there's definitely um, different methods, and there are definitely baby steps. And I think that's another strength of life water. Now that you mentioned that, now I think that they really just go at the pace of the community. So they don't really try to rush them too far in another direction, but they go at the pace. They go at their comfortability level of what can we incorporate now that's okay for you. We don't have to change the whole thing overnight, but what, what can we do now? And I think that that's really like a lot of what evangelism is evangelism is here like someone could have a ton of obstacles from like blocking them from believing in god but that's like that's going to be a process and we need someone to walk with that person in that process and maybe those like baby steps are the little things that people need to take and maybe that was one baby step like let's everyone go to the bathroom over here like maybe that's eventually going to lead to but yeah so you've talked about participatory methods quite a bit and the advantage of it and how you see it being better than other methods. But are there methods that you think actually hurt? Are there ways that like the kind of our bias is to go rushing in, mm-hmm. right? We want, we hear about a need and we think like suddenly we'll have a bake sale, we'll wear wristbands, <laughs> we'll talk about standing in a gap and then we'll go fix the problem. Mm-hmm. But other than that caricature, which is all too common, I think, um, are there ways that actually hurt? Um, I think that you need to be very sensitive about this because I think the model of going and providing is not always bad. Um, and I think that there is a difference between relief work and rehabilitation and development. And so relief would be um, sending blankets and stuff over to Japan, like now. Um, or, you know, when the whole Haiti earthquake happened, sending supplies and money and resources now. And I think that's the trickiest thing to discern when to do a relief response and when to do a rehabilitation slash development response. And I think the thing that hurts is to do a relief response in an area that requires development. And so that would be something like going to a place that is, you know, they're relatively okay, but there are some things that they need. Maybe they need a school or something like that. Maybe they need a hospital. I'm not saying that building a school for them is bad because it's not. It's, it's not. And I, that's why I have to be really careful because it's not a bad thing. I think that there are better ways of doing that. I think that if 
like local people are sitting and watching someone like foreigners build something for them or provide like food, medicine, like all that stuff, provide for that for them, it has the potential to be harmful in the sense that it will create like a dependency matrix or something like that. Um, not necessarily always true, but I think it has the potential to do that. And that's why the development and rehabilitation response takes so much longer. Because it's easy to go and pass out a bunch of malaria nets, or it's easy to go out and give every kid a vitamin or something like that. But in a setting where they have their own resources and they have their own, like, even local <coughs> community organizations that have resources and, and smart people to do that, then a church or someone who wants to help should go through that, at the very least, be invited to come by a community that's already there, like an organization or a church that's already there, at least, like at the very minimum. You have to go, and you can't go unless you're invited. Don't just go barging in, like, hey, here's my hammer and stuff, like, let's go. You know, at the very, very least, like, be invited by a church that's local. I read about in that book, When Helping Hurts, they were giving me this example about the Kibera slum in Kenya, in Nairobi. It's like the largest slum in all of Africa. And the guy was saying that there are organizations that will come in and do these like week-long camps, like soccer camps, which is great. You know, kids are a lot of fun and stuff like that. Um, and they'll go and they'll, you know, maybe do a school thing or an educational thing, and then they'll leave after like maybe two weeks, maybe even after two months. And these kids are left with a whole bunch of new soccer balls, but they don't know what to do with them. They have like you know, maybe they've taken like a math class the past two weeks, but they have nowhere to use that. They, you know, there's no, where, where's the continuation and where's like the longevity of that relationship? The author was saying that what would this slum have looked like now if the first organization that went in there um, at a time when they were ready for development and not relief, and that's the key, at a time when they were, they were stable and that they are ready for a development response, what would it have looked like if a community came in there and like harnessed a whole bunch of talents in that community to basically build up, build up this, this place? Would it still be the same place as it is now? Um, he says when he drives through there, and he's this tall Caucasian man, when he goes through there, like only thing that the kids ask him is like, money, money, do you have money for me? Can you give me money? Can you give me money? Can you give me a soccer ball? Can you give me this? Can you give me that? And he's like, how come that they're asking me that? Like, how come, what created this complex that me, this foreigner, is the distributor of all this stuff, you know? What was the complex that created that? And so that's just the question he asks um, in that one chapter. And when I read that, I was like, that's true. No one in these communities asked me for anything. When I, came, when I came through. Nobody. Not one kid asked me for money. Not one kid asked me for a soccer ball or for soap. You know, no one asked me for anything. And that wasn't true in other communities. I went to some, like, when I was just in Addison and stuff, people did ask me for stuff. But these specific communities that I was taken to, that's what I noticed. No one asked me for anything. And this one girl, I came in there and I asked, oh, whose well is this? Or, and when I, when I said that, I meant who's the WASH leader or where's the, the WASH committee. And this girl in Amharic, which was translated, she was like, it's our well. 
And, like, and they translated, like, they were all laughing. I'm like, why is everyone laughing? And they said, oh, she just says that it's our well. I'm like, that is your well. That is your well that you should be proud. And she goes, I know. That is my well. That's our well. Our community does this. Like, that person, like, hauled all these bricks. That person did this. That person cleans it. That person does that. And she could tell me who does everything. Like, she can tell me who maintains everything. So I just feel like there's the key is, like, when to do a relief response and when to do a development response. And that's what's harmful. Back to your question. <laughs> like, that's what's harmful if you do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Like, if someone went to Japan, like, right now, and was like, okay, we're going to harness, like, we're going to, like, take all this time and do all these trainings. And we're like, no, people are dying. They're buried under rubble, and that requires a relief response. We need to dig them out now. Like, that's definitely a relief response. But if someone tried to do a development response there, that would be bad, too, and that would be harmful. Do, are people responding in the wrong way? Because in that little snapshot, it seems obvious sitting here, like, what the del- delineation would be. When do you feel like it gets most blurred and people mm-hmm. kind of go out of the wrong way? Yeah. I think it gets most blurred when people see something that they have that could benefit somebody else, like, right now. Mm-hmm. And they want to just give it to that person, like, right now. And... The author of that book said that he came across a woman who was on the floor, like, you know, she was clutching her stomach. She needed this medicine. The medicine cost eight bucks, and he went to go buy it for her. And the whole story was that he regretted that a lot because he was describing how, you know, she was in pain, but she wasn't dying. You know, it was a stomach cramp. You know, she needed medicine, but it wasn't, um, she wasn't dying. She had a friend named Elizabeth that was a Christian, that was part of this group, that was really close to her. So at least the better step would have been to go and talk to Elizabeth, like someone who's going to be there with her for like a long time instead of this guy who's going to leave like in a week to go and get her the medicine. And even if she couldn't do that, like he was identifying that not only did she need medicine, but that this woman was an outcast and she needed community more than anything else. And there was like this whole church group of people like next door that could have helped her. So... He said that I would pay anything to get those $8 back from that woman and, like, just go to the church and tell her about this woman and bring, like, one of these people to go help this woman so that she can be incorporated in this community and she can get her medicine. And so that was, like, a regret story for him. Like, like she's fine, but I don't know now if she's incorporated in this community, if she's still an outcast, if she's still this. Like, if I had just taken a little bit more time and gone to the church, you know, the whole thing could have been different. Same thing, I don't know how often people do the wrong thing when, but I think that is the hard part, especially for us who are really time efficient and really like, okay, well, 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 latrine, 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 like, like, bam, 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 so we can show, like, our donors and stuff, the people that we're trying to get to support, this is what we did, this is what we did. But that must be a part of it because the way we even talk about it in this country is, you know, we first broadcast a statistic like a kid is dying every 15 seconds. People get moved by that here. I mean, I don't know if statistics work in other countries, but they definitely work here. And then you tell somebody, like, we could save that person with a $1 malaria net or a $1 clean water tablet or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so people start doing math in their head. They think, Mm -hmm. like, I could save this many kids if I could just give this many dollars, and it becomes a formula. And I think that it's true that that does create donations. Uh, It does move us to action. 
uh, but it's probably the cheapest and weakest way to do it. Yeah. But you could see why people then start doing that math yeah. everywhere else. Like they yeah. think, if I could raise $1,000 and I could buy 1,000 nets and I could save 1,000 families, yeah. right? And they start thinking in those numbers and they think $1,000 is not that big and I would have made a big impact to change the world. And so that is kind of almost like what runs in our <laughs> charity veins in this country mm -hmm. is that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. And I... I don't want to say that that is entirely bad because people do need to give money to organizations like Life Water or to World Vision. They need to give money to Water Aid. Like, I'm not saying that that's an entirely bad thing. I think that trying to get money in that way is definitely contributing to the whole complex of us thinking that we can save other people instead of, oh, people have their own skills to save themselves and... I could give this money to help further their realization of those skills. And so personally, I don't like any of that whole, like, oh, a kid dies every 15 seconds. I think that for me personally, I don't know if this is true about everybody else, but I would love to see an organization raise money by telling them, like, more about those kinds of stories and say, there could be, like, a million stories like this if you can give this money right now. I would love to see organizations do that. I just don't like pictures of kids like dying, and I just think that's a little bit exploitative too. So I just don't. I mean, LifeWater really has like a policy where they don't have pictures of like dying kids. They only show kids who are benefiting from wells. They only show kids and communities who are succeeding because like they have discovered their God-given talents, and those are the stories that LifeWater tells. And I really would love to see like people and other organizations do that kind of promotion to get donations. You know, I'd love to see them, like, tell a success story. I'm not saying that no one else does. Like, a lot of people do. You know, a lot of people do do that, and I would just like to see more of that kind of stuff. Krista? Uh, does LifeWater, do they have, like, spiritual conversations with the people that they're interacting with in the communities? And if not, or, like, do they kind of give that responsibility to the church? How does that work? Well, I mean, if I mean, when we were walking around, if someone asked us where we were from, we'll say, you know, we're, we're partners with the McConaughey's Church. And if definitely if a local person comes and asks, it's not like we can't talk to anybody. It's not like that hands-off, you know? And I've definitely seen, like, Jim, the, the, the lead trainer, someone asked him, like, where are you guys from? Why do you guys do this? And he goes, we do this because, you know, we believe in a God that loves you. And that was his response, and then it was translated, you know, like, and he'll say that kind of stuff. Um, LifeWater intentionally partners with, Chris, like, the local organizations that they partner with are intentionally Christian because they want to cater to that spiritual aspect of poverty as well, like that broken relationship between people and God, like, that's something that they want to cater to too, so they intentionally partner with Christian organizations. And their training is also, they also address um, in their international volunteer field trainings, um, when they train the trainers, they in their curriculum they have like sections in every lesson that are devoted to, you know, why would God want us to change this behavior? And it's always optional. If someone who's in the training that's a Muslim doesn't want to participate in that, they have that policy that they can walk and they, they can go up and leave at any time. At the end of every lesson they have, you know, verses and scripture and like a mini Bible study that's that they can do just to have the discussion of like why would God want us to have a place to dispose of our feces? And there are verses that say that, you know, like 
in the Old Testament, God's like commanding people to have a place to go to the bathroom because this place is holy and the Lord is going to be present here and, you know, your feces is unholy. Like, basically, like, that's what it is. And so, like, they'll talk about those verses in the Old Testament and they'll talk about those things with these people for a lot of these different lessons, too. So they definitely incorporate that into their training and they definitely train their, their trainers to do the same thing. Again, it's always optional for Muslim trainers to, to incorporate that. Any other questions? Brittany. I'm wondering if a lot of these communities are really far away from resources, how do they acquire when they need new soap and things like that? How do they get those? Yeah, a lot of these communities are very far away, and they will make trips into the local marketplace, even if it's like two or three hours away. Um, a lot of the communities I talk to, they... Um, we'll make a trip to the local market maybe like once every two weeks, maybe once every three weeks, enough time for them to get stuff. LifeWater is um, beginning to implement a soap-making curriculum <laughs> out of like local materials like animal fat and like stuff like that. They're beginning to do that. They haven't um, done it everywhere, but they're beginning to do that kind of stuff in their local communities. They also teach them to use local materials. Like with their pit latrines, they're not going to like bring in like sheets of tin metal, like whatever, to, to be like the four walls around, which I've seen. I've seen those. I think other organizations do that. But they teach them how to make it out of like the local tree branches and stuff, how to like, like shave it all down and then like put them into like a wall. They teach them how to dry their, their leaves so that they're strong and that they can tie the sticks together. And the reason why they do that is so that, so that they don't have to travel into the town all the time just to get like wood to go or these sheets of metal to go and build the trains, which are expensive too. They teach them how to use like the materials that they already have in their community. So again, that's an aspect of sustainability so that these trees are going to be here. You know, They're going to grow new branches. The leaves are going to come back. They teach them to do that so that it's sustainable in that way. Sounds like their lead trainer is MacGyver, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a question? I was curious how LifeWater figures out where work. So if it's yeah. kind of an, an inward mm-hmm. to outward, is it like, here's, we happen to know someone in this, or we happen to have like this connection in the country, or is it kind of outward yeah. or like, here is a country that really we'll figure out a way to get It's both. They get requests a lot for organizations to work with them. They definitely look for a specific type of organization to work with, like the one, the Makane Jesus Church in Ethiopia, just because that their structure requires an organization that is well-developed and is holistic as well. And they basically want to build their capacity in what they're already doing. They get requests a lot of times for different things, but a lot of them send requests because with LifeWater does come a lot of money too. They're very like successful in what they do so they get a lot of different grants from like USAID or like Hilton Foundation or some stuff like that. So a lot of organizations are like, oh we want to look at LifeWater because then they will have money to do their projects. But they are very particular in the organizations they want to work with because that organization needs to already have a certain structure, regardless of whether they're big or small. They could be a very small organization because LifeWater is a pretty small organization. But they could be a small organization, but they have, like, the, the framework and, um, I guess, the structure, I guess, to handle 
the type of like training that life water does because it again does take a really long time not a really long time but it takes more time than just going and giving people stuff you know Matt? How did this experience affect your perspective or just transform you as a person? Um, I think one of the, I'll say, I'll say one. Um, it really just taught me how much I don't know about a lot of things. It taught me, like, if I have something to offer these people, it's me helping them realize that they have so much more to offer themselves than I could ever give them. And that's, like, I guess that's the thing that I could contribute. I mean, I even... I was frustrated when I was sitting in the training because I didn't have anything to do. And my whole, like, time efficiency, like, J personality, like, kicked in. And I was like, I should be doing something. I should be preparing the next lesson's notes. I should be getting this. I should be doing that. And that was just so counterintuitive to what we were trying, what we were doing the training for. Um, Like, it's hard for me to be, like, more of a facilitator that's, like, hands-off, you know, than just to be, let's go do it. I know we can do it. Like, is we just budget out our time well, then we can do it all, you know? And that's not, like, that's not the goal of life water. It's, it takes time, and sometimes it'll take as much time as the community needs. Of course, again, like, if that community is struck by a disaster and they need water, like, right away, then life water will go and give it to them, you know? Like, that's a relief response. But that's, I think, the thing that I learned m- most is just... It's tricky to do this type of work because it involves a lot of relationship building and it involves a lot of cultural understanding I don't have. And maybe the best thing that I can do is train other people so that they can do that better. So, Carissa? I actually think that's a really good attitude to have because I think that's empowering for the people Mm -hmm. to know that, hey, this outsider really thinks I can do some things for myself. I think that's really hard. Okay, my question is... um, Maybe kind of like the same question Matt was asking, but like uh, your relationship with God, like has yeah. that been shaped or like? Yeah, I remember like when I did my first field visit, I was really, really sad afterwards just because I think that when I was viewing all that, I had a different lens on. I didn't have the what is good in this community lens. I had the oh my gosh, everything is bad in this community lens. You know, and all I focused on was like the six kilometers that they had to walk every day to get water, even if it was clean water. All I focused on was, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they live in this grass hut and that their animals live with them, like their cattle and stuff. Oh my gosh, I see these little girls carrying these like huge things of water on their back. And that's all I focused on. And I was just like crying the whole night. (laughs) And the next day, I went out again. And I don't know what changed. I was just like, God, I can't have another day like yesterday. Like, I just can't, you know. And I think after that, like, God just kind of hit me and was like, Tiffany, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Like, these people, I mean, I didn't hear God say this to me, <laughs> like, in an audible voice or anything. But this is the feeling that I had. And I really just consider that as God, like, saying, Tiffany, I got this. And what I experienced was just... Just a change of perspective, I think. Like, not only did... I mean, yes, they still had to walk six kilometers to the closest clean water source. That was still true. But I think what God was trying to show me was that, you know, these people know me in a way that you'll never, ever know me. Like, they know how to depend on me in a way that you're never going to know. Because you have clean water, like, 
right at your sink. You know, like you can drink the water out of your sink, even in Pasadena. Like you can just stick your head under it and you won't get, you probably won't get sick. And so I think after that, I just had so much more respect for these people. I was just so in awe of like, yeah, these people, like their life is not easy. Like it's definitely not easy. But God was saying like, no, look at the ways I've already blessed them. Even if they still have to walk six kilometers, like, to the close clean water. Look how, like, close they are with their friends and their neighbors. And look how much community that they have. Like, they all get together, like, every single day and drink coffee for, like, an hour. And it's delicious. You know, <laughs> like, and they all know each other's names. They know, all know each other's birthdays. And they all know, all that kind of stuff. And that's just one thing, you know. I think that was the biggest thing. God was just like, they know me in a way that you're not going to know me. And it doesn't mean that the way you know me is bad or anything. It's just different. Um, and you can learn from them. And they can learn from you. So, you know, that's how you should approach this. Like, you both have something mutually beneficial to offer each other. You don't just have everything to me. Like, you have, like, this little thing. And they have, like, this little thing. Or they may even have more. And, like, you need to talk to one another. You need to be friends with each other. You know, I just wish I had more time to stay with them. And like, I wish I stayed in one place, I think longer than a week. That's just, that's the thing I wish. I was just all over the place visiting a whole bunch of different sites because they wanted to show me like every single toilet that was in like this region. Like they wanted to show me everything. Every family wanted me to show me like their toilet and their soap and that kind of stuff. So bring it home for us. What's the... What's the thing that we can do? What do we take out of this? Because we didn't have the chance to go on the six weeks and probably won't. From what you learned and what we can do here, what would you challenge us with? What would we, what would we apply from, you know, that you could bring to us? Um, I think one is to, I think it's important for us to be diligent in researching who we give money to. Like I said, again, we do need to give money to organizations like that's how they function um but if you know if we're going to take time to you know research a health issue or something whether or not we should take a certain type of vitamin if we're going to research that extensively or little decisions here and there or like if we applied the same amount of like time that we took to decide on what college we were going to go to to giving to a certain organization i think that would benefit us and different organizations are really effective a lot. And I think the most common question I get when I say this to somebody is like, well, how do you know which organizations to give to and like whatnot? And I'm like, you need to read like their website. Like you need to go to their website and mine it and look for language like empowerment. Sometimes they'll have that, but they don't really mean that. And you have to look at like the different projects. What are the things that they highlight are successes? Like do they highlight 313 mosquito nets or something like that or they, do they highlight like these communities are empowered to use their mosquito nets because you know they pay for them we're not just giving to them like they're paying for it or you know or do they lose language like you know highlighting the pride that someone has when they built this new school or they built a clinic or different things like that um, I think that that is key and again, life order is not perfect. I make it seem like it's this like god of all organizations, and they're not. Like they're very effective here. And maybe in like 50 years, there's going to be another way of doing development that's going to be more effective. I don't know. But I think that 
if we take the time to research like the places that we give money to, the places that we serve, then that would be great. And that's why like Door of Hope was so great because they are an organization that doesn't just give people food, doesn't just give people stuff. They make them work for it. They make the families like go through these classes. They take families who are interested in helping themselves. They don't just take anybody. You know, they interview these families and discern, okay, is this person willing to work for it, like to work for their improvement? And they make them go through all these different classes and stuff like that. And, you know, the people who come out of Door of Hope are so much more empowered than if they had just been given, like, a shelter to live in. Um, so I think that's one thing, just being, like, responsible in researching who we give money to, not just giving money. I think that's important. We've talked a lot about giving money, but be responsible in, like, the type of organizations that we give to. And I think the second thing is it's really helped me to remember that poverty is not just material. You know, I've seen you know, friends that are going through a host of just personal, I call it personal poverty, but what I mean by that is just a lot of obstacles for them to get through before they can even think about knowing who Jesus is. And if I just thought of poverty as a spiritual thing, like, oh, they don't know God, then, you know, if my response is, okay, well, I just need to tell them about God, you know, (laughs) that is not really going to work when they have a host of, like, either psychological or physical, social things that are keeping them from knowing the Lord. And I think that that applies to a lot of other things, too. Just, you know, someone could be exhibiting, like, you know, signs of a mental disorder or something like that, but that might not be all that there is. It might be something spiritual that's plaguing them, too. It might be something physical that's plaguing them. It might be something, like, social or something like that, besides the the psychology of it all. I think that's really helped me to ask a different set of questions. When I see someone who's really hurting about something, like, it's helped me to ask, okay, this person's hurting about something, but what other things could be contributing to this person's hurt? Is it spiritual? Could be. Is it something going on with their family? It could be. It could be. Is it because they're, like, you know, homeless? It could be. <laughs> you know, like, it could be a host of different things. And I think that I that really gets us into a lot of trouble when we just attack, like, oh, this person just needs that. This person just needs this, you know? Uh, we could be ignoring a lot of different things that also are plaguing that person that are preventing them from getting to that thing that we just see. Let's give Tiffany a hand. Let me pray right now, and then we'll kind of finish up and worship and then come back with a couple of other announcements at the end of worship. Lord, we're thankful that we are able to just see a glimpse of the way that you work. And Lord, we confess to you openly that we miss so much of the way that you work. That so much of what you do is unseen. So we're thankful for just this glimpse. We're thankful for the practicum that Tiffany has had, the experiences she's gained. And I'm sure there are experiences that she has that she can't put into words. They're not going to be things that she can even explain to us. That the frustration that comes of seeing so many amazing things and not being able to put words to them, I'm sure that she would rather wish that we had just been able to walk with her and see it firsthand because that might be the only way to explain it. But we're thankful nonetheless that she's come back and given a testimony to what you've done in her life, what you're doing all over the nation of Ethiopia. And specifically, Lord, we pray for the people who are stewarding life water. 
Help them, Lord, to continue in these development methods that actually help, that build up people, that give them dignity, give them their own pride, give them their own sustainable ways of helping one another. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that we learn, for education, for even Tiffany's degree, that we can use these things and that you gift these things to us. But, Lord, thank you for reminding us of the humility that she teaches us about, that no matter how much we learn or that we think we know, that when we're actually there, Lord, we see that those people have more to offer themselves and to us. Lord, all of these things come as gifts from you, even the surprising ways that we find joy in the midst of what we would otherwise think of as a difficult place. Thank you for bringing her back safely to us. Thank you for her time in presenting to us tonight. And Lord, may you bless her time there and multiply it many times over. May she continue to be a lifelong learner, but as she already is, a lifelong doer. Pray these things in your name. Amen.